Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I feel like you are a busy bee at the moment. I've been doing the prestigious midnight till 3am slot on Radio 2. I've listened to... To every every, night, every second. Yeah, yeah. I, that's good because I've prepared a test, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah <So>. great. <laughs> uh, and and then this coming week, mm. you're doing six music from 5am till 7am. So for those who can't get enough of you, and I'm sure yeah. there are lots of mm. uh, thousands of listeners who can't, uh, they could, no, I mean that seriously, <laughs> they can listen to you from 5am till 7am on six music. Yeah, I have a policy of never broadcasting at a godly hour, only ever ungodly hours. No, I think it's great. You're a man in demand. It's, it's, yeah, I'm very much enjoying it. Yeah. But uh, you're sort of slightly over, it's slightly overwhelming, isn't it? I feel a little bit jet lagged yeah. is, is the truth of it. Yeah. But, um, but here we are. Yeah, that well, bodes well for today's podcast, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you enjoy the Prime Minister dancing her way onto the stage at the Tory party conference? I thought it was quite... She owned She owned the joke, didn't she? Yeah, definitely. I think that's sort of, in a way, the principle. Have you ever danced in public? Uh, oh, good question. I don't... Mm, I mean, I must... I don't know what in public means. But there's... I mean, it's never gone viral. Not that I know of. I think it's probably a good thing from my I point think of so. view. It probably reflects well on your dancing if it has happened in public. No, I don't think so. I think it's just because nobody's sort of <laughs> caught it on camera. No, nobody's caught it on camera. Uh, I remember years ago, after George Harrison died, I went to Liverpool and they staged a very well-intentioned but somewhat shambolic tribute to him outside the town hall on a November evening, I think it was, on a stage. And uh, the, at the end, the mayor of Liverpool, who 
looked like mayors used to look. Do you know what I mean? By yeah, that? yeah. Um, he came on to thank everybody for for coming and said, and we're going to listen to one of George's songs now to to finish. And they played "Here Comes the Sun" loudly yeah. at the speakers. But this sort of older man was stuck in the middle of the stage. He didn't know what to do with himself, so he just started dancing on his own. And it was quite that the most could, uncomfortable that thing. Could have been me. That could it could have been me. It could have been. His yeah. wife was standing in the wings and she, she sort of felt sorry for him and she came on and danced with him. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah. Are you a good dancer? No, terrible. Absolutely terrible. So do you have no, dan- no dancing policy? No dancing policy at all, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We didn't even have a disco at our wedding. I mean, Sarah is a fantastic dancer, isn't she? She's an she? amazing dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the greatest dancer. Mm. What about Justine? Yeah, she's good. She's a good dancer. Um, our wives should have a dance-off. That's a bit competitive. Dance-a-thon. Yeah, they should have a dance-a-thon for comic relief. I did get asked to do some ITV programme, which was some combination of Strictly plus Children in Need plus <laughs> kind of community dancing. I thought they kind of got the wrong bloke, really. Have you ever done anything? It was well-intentioned. I could see you breakdancing. I think not. <laughs> did you do the Caterpillar? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that passed me by. Um, but now, we, I said you were a busy bee. We're talking about work this week and doing less of it. Mm. The three-day weekend. Um, four day, the four-day week and the three-day weekend. I did uh, that from 2006 through to late 2008, and it was the best. Really? Yeah, four-day week. Three, I mean, it's, it's a good balance, that. Well, is that be, you'd become a sort of megastar at at absolute had you it was virgin radio virgin then. yeah just um you know they said what do you want to do i said i'd quite like to do a full day working week and they, they let me and was it a friday that you had off yeah and what did you do on the friday um i, I just you know potter about yeah go swimming read all the things that you like to do in your leisure time Sounds... and i felt better for it yeah i'm sure it's good well so we're gonna be talking to andrew barnes who runs a company in new zealand that has experimented with and now put in place permanently the four-day week and you know he's quite a visionary guy you were too busy working uh to talk to him but i i i talked to him so we're going to be hearing from him and then kate bell from the tuc trade union congress they've recently called for the four-day week and uh she used to work for me kate and we're gonna be talking to her and as well as all that we are joined by a really funny comedian it's a delight to have him on today matthew crosby so what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I went to see Early Doors live at the Hammersmith Apollo this week. Now, Early Doors was a sitcom uh, 15 years ago. It's one of those things that if you saw it at the time, you probably loved it. If not, it might have passed you by a rising damp. Is that as far as your knowledge of sitcoms goes? Well, it's just two words. <laughs> which sort of have something to do with the free, house. You're doing your free words. Yeah, exactly. Now, Early Doors is a phrase you use up north for people. No, no, I understand what Early Doors okay. means. <laughs> Sometimes you don't know these no, things. No, no, I, I understand Early Doors. So said, what was it about, Early so, Doors? So it was created by a, an old friend of mine who I started off in radio with, Craig Cash, who was one of the people who created Mrs. Merton and the Royal Family oh, with right. Carolina Hearn. And it was very much in the same vein as the Royal Family in that it was a very naturalistic, right. slow sitcom set in a pub. And uh, it's it's been off air for 15 years and it's become more of a cult classic right. over the years. I think either Prince William or Harry talked about loving it in an interview. Wow. And they've, they've taken it to the stage. And um, I said to Craig, do you, do you think it will work with audience laughter? 
in it and i can report back that it works very well with audience fantastic and this is coming from me the man who when craig showed me the royal family the the early sort of edit of it i said it's really funny craig but i think people at home need a bit of studio laughter under it to to, and you know how wrong i was when that revolutionized british yeah yeah yeah, definitely so that's that's my reason to. and mine is telly related as well which is uh, we just didn't have really got into killing eve who's the phoebe waller bridge written uh, and I think directed thriller, really. What's the premise? Um, or does it ruin the it? Pr- no, the premise is about a hit woman uh, who goes around Europe killing lots of people. And Eve, played by Sandra O, oh, is on her trail. And it's got the fantastic female characters. And we, we also got into The Bodyguard, which also had f- fantastic female characters. But I think there's something really just very it's kind of you know it's one of those thrillers that is just a bit unconventional as well i really recommend it that's another thing for the watch list yeah no it's great to have something which is and it's like a number of there's eight episodes i think and so there's kind of we're into we're we're through episode two and it's just brilliant you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd We're joined now by Andrew Barnes, who is the founder of Perpetual Guardian, who are specialists in providing wills, trusts and enduring powers of attorney in New Zealand. And they have made uh, headlines around the world with their four-day week plan. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Ed. Tell us, first of all, about your experiment and why you decided to do it. Well, I'm generally very dangerous when I'm on aeroplanes. And what that means is that I have time to read. So I read an article from The Economist which said that Brits were actually only productive for two and a half hours a day and then went on suggesting that Canadians were an even worse one and a half hours a day. So I then started to think, well, why is that and would that apply to my business? And... I figured it was because that people, when they were in the office, had lots of disturbances of varying fine uh, kinds. It could be social, it could be social media, it could be business. And that got me thinking, if I gave my staff a day off, would it change their working habits when they're in the office? Wow. And and that was in, well, what, 2017 or something? Yeah, it was late 2017, uh, early 2018 and uh, you know I flicked a flicked an email to my head of people and capability and said you know how about a four-day week I think she deleted the email and hoped I would <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't mention it again but I'd made a post-it note so uh, when I came back I said no I'm, I'm serious but let's let's give this a try and you started the experiment earlier this year mm-hmm. to tell us how it's gone we knew it was going to be controversial and that sort of wasn't helped because I forgot to advise my board, so they all heard about it when I announced it on national television in New Zealand. Right, I see. Well, that's a a good way of treating your board. (laughs) Yes, put them firmly in their place. Exactly. We gave a month for the teams to plan, because at its heart, and this is really the essence of this, this is a discussion about productivity. It's not a discussion, first and foremost, about work-life balance. That comes from this. So what we're trying to say is that the debate you need to have with your employees is about productivity. So we gave them a month to plan, and then we launched uh, what was then a two-month trial. At the same time, we ran research from uh, Auckland University Business School and Auckland University of Technology 
alongside it so that we could identify what the impacts were on the staff and on the way the company was was operating. And so that was quite a defined piece of research. And then we stopped and then we evaluated the research and then revisited what we'd done uh, before we were in a position to then say, righto, let's let's make this permanent. And tell us about the results and then and then your decision to make it permanent. Interestingly, productivity broadly remained the same. Now, that means effectively our staff were being 20% more productive in the days they did work. So our model is uh, based on a conventional... 32 hours, basically. Yeah, yeah, a conventional day. We don't increase the hours when you're working in the four. So our productivity yeah. was broadly the same, went up marginally. What happened, though, was that engagement scores went up by an average of 30 to 40% across the company. Work-life balance shot up. Stress levels dropped by about 15%. But the one that really jumped out of the page was that people's perception of their ability to handle their workload improved. Which is paradoxical, maybe. Absolutely paradoxical. I can work four days and it's easier to do my work. What we then got is a, is a whole raft of, of, shall we say, rather more softer results on the qualitative side. And we realized that this was changing the lives of our staff in a material way. It was enabling our male employees to be dads during the week, to go and pick their kids yeah. up, to give reconnection. Yeah. Um, it, we had a newly married couple, you know, he worked as a chef at weekends. My employee was actually able to spend a day with her husband, which otherwise wouldn't have occurred. All of this yeah. stuff we didn't anticipate. And then that flowed through into debates around gender pay, uh, how we think about flexible working. So the whole experiment started to open up more lines of thought than we ever imagined when we initiated the trial at, at the beginning of the year. Tell us about the impact on the gender pay, flexible working sort of aspect of this. Well, if, if you think about it, when um, generally a woman returns to work from maternity leave, the first thing they do is negotiate time off. Now, I think if you asked any business leader, he would say that a, a returning mother is possibly one of the most uh, individuals to manage her time. And that actually, for, in most cases, one will get a full week's value from someone who's only working four days a week. Once you initiate a, a four-day week trial, in essence, you are then saying, well, hang on, it's productivity that matters. It's how we pay yeah. and reward productivity. It's not how we pay and reward somebody just warming a seat in the office. So we have subsequently adjusted upwards the salaries of our, in fact, in, in a couple of cases, senior lead, female leaders who had actually made that mistake, come back and negotiated on time. We're now paying them as if they are full-time because we're paying on productivity. The other thing it does is it also, because everybody gets a day off, suddenly care is not a family care, 
it doesn't remain in the preserve of the female domain. All of our staff have an expectation that they can have a day. And that means that people can share family responsibilities. And all your senior male leaders are doing this as well. So your arguments around, well, he's committed, she's only part-time, all of those go at the same time. I mean, that sounds brilliant. And just in terms of your finances, and I guess this is sort of clear, you said very clearly in the announcement you made to your staff, it's a five days pay for four, a four day week. I assume you've, you've coped with this financially because the productivity has gone up. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, our overall profitability has gone up. Uh, and bizarrely, we've had business come to us precisely because we are operating this way. I think in, in modern society, increasingly, people are looking for companies who are operating ethically. But, but you know, as a hard-nosed businessman, I have to be. I've got an independent board and independent shareholders to look after. Um, what I'm getting is better productivity, but I'm actually getting better quality of work as well because my staff are fresher. They are more committed. I have a queue of people down the street wanting to work for us. We have lower turnover. We have lower sick leave. All of these things are actually, you know, driving the business as well. It's not a three-day weekend for everyone, is it? Because you've still got people in the office on Fridays and Mondays. So it, it's sort of the, the days that people have off vary just to sort of a point of technicality, really. Yeah, this is very much a team-based approach. So the each individual team develops their own rosters. And that may mean that this week you might get Friday, next week it might be Wednesday. Unless, of course, you actually have one team member who says, I always want Tuesday, and everybody else goes, we'd really, we really hate Tuesdays, so actually we'd yeah, rather yeah, work yeah. those days. Now, that's important. We have to still deliver a customer service to the same standards. And we have uh, 16 retail branches across New Zealand, we have to service those customers in normal business hours. And so notwithstanding the fact that we're doing this, we've had to restructure things, generally driven by the staff, so that customer service isn't adversely impacted at all. And just to be clear, you haven't ended up with people having to do the extra work at home. You know, there's been a reduction in that sort of net number of working hours, home and home and work, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, there has been. Now, the way we do it, it's a, our contract terms can't change. We have to we have to still contract you for five days a week. And the reason for that is employment legislation in New Zealand is highly prescriptive about days of work, start times, finish times, etc., but what we say is if you deliver us the productivity, we will gift you a day off. Now, occasionally we know something may happen that needs a response from someone who's not in the office. So we ask people in emergency to make themselves available. We rarely have to use that. It is occasionally that we have to do it, but it is very, very rare. So the key thing for us is it's a gift it isn't a right. So the gift is important because what we're trying to do is change behavior in the office. I'm going to shorten my meeting. I'm going to concentrate by not disturbing other people. I'm not going to spend as much time on social media. And if you accumulate all those... That's good changes, advice for everybody. Yeah. Uh, we found um, our 
surfing on the five most common sites that people go to in New Zealand went down 35% in the period of wow. the trial. Now, you'd expect 20%. It shows you there is a yeah. change of behavior. And that's what this is about. What would you want to do? Do you want to surf the net? Do you want a day off? You want to have a long chat around the water cooler? You want a day off. And so Sounds it also means good. if you don't deliver productivity, I can take the day back and you can come back and work for five until we've sorted out what the problem is and then get you back to four days. Do you think this can work everywhere in all industries, Andrew? I Look, I do. The debate here is about output and productivity. People say to me, it would never work in medicine. And I say, well, would you rather be operated on by the doctor who's been there for an hour or the doctor who's been there for 12? And yes, we might need to have more people, but what we get out of those people, the quality of the services that we get out of them, the value, the return to society. So in the, in the example of medicine, what is the knock-on effect of better care? Then actually, I think this applies. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's absolutely our model, but our message to everybody is just try, and the starting point is ask your staff. Now, I've got one final question. My co-presenter, Jeff, is not on this interview, but he would kill me if I didn't ask this question, which is he's got something called the Jeffocracy, which is his ideal universe where he is the supreme ruler. <laughs> if he made you the Secretary of State for Employment uh, in the UK, um, and he sort of called you in on day one and said, right, you know, what, what would you do? What, what, what would you do? Well, I think the biggest challenge facing us at the moment is the impact of the gig economy. So one of the things that I am very firm on is that I am not using this as a tool to reduce people's pay. In fact, you know, pay is determined by the quality and, and capacity of the output. So the great thing about working in a, an established company is you have a superannuation loading, you have sick pay, you have holiday pay. Now, what we're seeing in the market is we're seeing, uh, let's call them, you know, technology businesses for the most part, coming in and using um, gig employees to circumvent those protections. And I know there have been battles yeah. fought around Uber drivers yeah. in, in the yeah. UK. So my rule would be that whether you are in a gig role on a contract or whether you are employment, if you're in the gig con contract, it has to be loaded with holiday pay, sick pay, and superannuation. And those are individual accounts which drop to the benefit of the gig worker. Because if you don't do that, you encourage people to arbitrage those hard-fought protections, the battles that were fought by the labor movement you know, through the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century to improve the conditions of working men and women. And I think we lose those at our peril. But you're seeing, you know, um, well, Bezos this, re this week recently going, yes, okay, I'm being shamed into pay the minimum wage. And then he comes out to agitate to increase the minimum wage. But he spent 20 years probably smashing lots of small companies.
Right. And now, of course, he can do it again by raising their wages. We've allowed that to happen in the West. We have not looked through these structures and taken steps to ensure that workers are protected appropriately. That would be my number one uh, number one move. Well, I'm sure I can speak for Jeff. You've got the job, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been brilliant. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it. Listening to that, uh, we're joined now by Kate Bell, who's the Head of Economics and Social Policy at the TUC and uh, used to work as an advisor to me, but she's lived to tell the tale. <laughs> I have. Uh, Survived and, fact, and thrived. She's gone on to do great things since she stopped working for me. I think, you know, there's a pattern among our guests. Is that well, what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. How, how was Ed with the working hours? Oh, totally fine. I mean, it was short working hours, you know, very controlled, very constrained, actually. So you weren't getting the emails at one in the morning? Never, never, never. She'll go far, I think, (laughs) in the diplomatic service as well as the TUC. Um, So, look, we've got you on not just because uh, it's good to reminisce about old times, uh, (laughs) but um, the TUC is very relevant to this debate. Um, Maybe let's just start off with what, Frances O'Grady, your general secretary, said at the Trade Union Congress, because she raised the issue of the four-day week, didn't she? Absolutely. And we started off, it was our 150th anniversary um, this year, and we wanted to think not just about our past, but about the future. And so we wanted to set out some kind of bold ambitions for what we could achieve in the next century. Um, And we started thinking about the potential of new technology. So we hear quite a lot about kind of robots, about artificial intelligence, and how this is going to kind of possibly take all our jobs away. And we wanted to say, well, what you know, what this technology is meant to do is make us more productive. What should we do with that productivity? And shorter working hours has always been a core aim of the trade union movement. And we wanted to really put that back on the table. And and am I right in thinking that while we currently are used to the, the idea, not everybody does it, some people work more and some people work less, but over the five day week and, 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 you know, whether it's 40 hours or 35 hours, whatever it is, um, that hasn't always been the case. Absolutely. So we kind of take it for granted, but that was really hard fought for. So looking back over that 150-year span, in 1868, when the TUC was founded, the average working week was 62 hours, um, which is enormous. That Um, was the average. Yeah. So, and then when you look at kind of early trade union... That was like working for me, basically. (laughs) 1868 (laughs) and 2010 to 2015. 2015, Ed Miliband. Yeah. Um, So we fought really hard to get those hours down um, in many contexts. (laughs) Yeah. and, you know, the eight-hour working day was a really kind of key demand for the early trade union And when movement. would that have... That was in the 20, early 20th century? Yeah, and kind of the late um, 19th century. Um, it's really interesting. The first um, international labour organisation convention was actually on working hours. And the eight-hour day has got this kind of really nice history where it was eight hours for work, eight hours for leisure and eight hours for sleep. But that was hard won. And even kind of by the middle of the century, kind of around the Second World War, many, many people were still working six days a week. And again, trade unions really fought to get that concept of the weekend embedded in kind of most people's of course not everybody still still battles to be won but most people's working lives it's not just that you've come along Francis O'Grady made this call at the congress but you know you wrote a report which the TUC published but that was about workers attitudes as well and you've, you've talked to the workforce about what they want to see Absolutely. And again, thinking about this, well, you know, if we get this productivity boom from new technology, what should we do with that? There is a real demand out there, we think, for shorter working hours. So we asked people, you know, ideally, how many days a week would you work if you could maintain your living standards? And it's really important to say, you know, we're not suggesting that people 
drop their pay. And most people, it's quite interesting, most people said four days a week. So, we, you know, you might think that people just go, uh, well, I'll work one day a week, please. But actually, That's what I would do. What I was going to ask, what would you say? <laughs> so what is that? Is you wouldn't that... really say one day a week, I don't think. I, I, you know, if I uh, came into some money, I think I could occupy my time working zero still, days a week. I think you'd still choose to do lots of broadcasting, wouldn't you, otherwise? I might choose to do lots of watching telly or travelling, do you think? <laughs> yeah. Right, OK. But that's why I think it's so interesting that four yeah. days a week was kind of the most commonly And it's because people option. feel that's, that's realistic, they might get four days a week. I mean, there might be something in that, but you can also see some interesting stuff. Um, the CIPD, who kind of represent HR professionals, did some work, I think it's last year, and they said um, the average person wants to work five hours a week less. Um, but there was a quarter of people who wanted to be working ten hours a week less. So somewhere between there, you get to kind of this idea that you know, our working time could be a bit shorter. And to some extent is is what you're talking about, the technology changing the way we work and the amount of time we have already here. Because if you think about the changes that have happened over the last mm. couple of decades, a, a lot of things have become so much easier. Are people, to some extent, are some people just sort of killing time at work? Um, well, you know, actually, we have some recent evidence saying that people are actually working more intensely than ever before. Just some research out this week feel many people feel that work has intensified. And I think one of the really interesting things about like the last wave of technology we've had is it has intensified working life. You know, you're more easily contactable when you're not at work, right. but it hasn't led to an increase in productivity. So, you know, you'll probably know that like productivity, the amount we produce per hour has flatlined for the last decade or so. So we've had this big wave of technological progress, you know, more intensification of work, not an increase in productivity. But what the hope is, the optimism is that the next wave of technological change will actually make us more efficient. And how how consistent is that productivity number in Britain with other comparable European countries? Well, Britain's really kind of falling behind the pack. And actually, it's interesting to think about this. You know, we talked about increased productivity might enable us to reduce working hours. But I think, um, as the guy from New Zealand was saying, maybe reducing working hours would enable us to increase productivity. So when you look at Germany, for example, um, it was actually Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, who said, you know, the German worker produces in four days what the British worker does in five. And that's not a slur on the British worker. That's a kind of slur on the way we've organised our economy and organised our workplaces. And we work, uh, as you imply, a lot longer than other countries, comparable countries. Is that right? Seven hours more than the yeah, Dutch? exactly. Seven hours more a week. So sorry. when you look at average hours um, across the um, kind of across people who work full time and part time, we're working seven more hours a week on average than um, people in the Netherlands. I think it's four hours a week more than people in Denmark and two hours a week more in Germany. And I think the really interesting thing when you look at the kind of cross national comparisons is that it isn't, you know, more productive countries work longer hours. It's almost the reverse. What's the TUC view about the productivity problem that Britain has then? Because, because you know, clearly you don't want productivity to drop if you reduce working hours. But in any case, Britain has got a big productivity gap with other countries. Um, well, I guess we highlight three things in particular. One's the lack of investment in the UK economy, and partly that's about austerity. Um, and a bit of it is about kind of business short-termism. Um, secondly, I think the kind of rise in insecure work we've seen does make people less productive. And we had some kind of evidence which suggested a correlation, not causation, between the rise of insecure work and the fall of productivity. But I think it's kind of, 
easy to imagine where if you don't know when you're going to be working, um, if you don't have rights, you might be less productive at work. And then thirdly, the UK has much less well-developed um, systems for workers having a voice in their company and actually being able to kind of put into practice new innovations. So you think, you know, let's say you introduce some new technology into the workforce. You actually want to ask people, is this going to work? You know, does this new email system crash your computer every time you use it? Um, actually, what is it that you need to do to make this place work better? And there's really good evidence that where workers have a greater voice and say in the workplace, productivity is higher. So that's where we'd start. Right. And how do you sort of react to Andrew from New Zealand saying, you know, I mean, he, you know, he he's sort of quite a visionary, obviously, because he just came along, thought, right, I've read this thing on the plane about how unproductive people are. Um, you know, he said in his interview, social media use went down but when they you know were saying we'll do the, do in 32 what you were doing in 40 i mean does that i suppose that for me that was important because it kind of gets over the conundrum of how do you reduce working hours without reducing pay absolutely and i think we were kind of saying as i said we started thinking about this was what if we get this productivity boom? And I think it's really important to remember that when we talk about kind of the rise of the robots or artificial intelligence, that's what we're talking about. They're instruments to increase our efficiency because otherwise why would business be introducing them? You know, that's the incentive to invest is because it makes it easier to do things faster. So we were kind of saying everyone's predicting this productivity boom, what should we do with it? So we're seeing technology as enabling, but, you know, there's lots of other things we know might enhance productivity, more secure working hours, people having more of a say in decisions they make at work. Um, you know, we know those are really important too, so we could get some of the productivity gains that way as well. I suppose then it's on to the question of how. You know, you've got people like Andrew who are sort of spreading the gospel, mm. um, but that's the history of this has generally been it isn't just benevolent employers like Andrew who are going to make this happen. So what's the thinking of the TUC about the how? Well, over time, you know, it's something we've bargained for, basically. So trade unions have fought for that right and won it in individual workplaces and then been able to kind of drive political change, which has delivered it more widely. And I think there's some really interesting examples happening around the world now. So you can see in Germany, um, the Metal Workers Union, IG Metal, has just negotiated the right to um, drop your hours down to 28 hours a week. Um, they've got another agreement, I think it's on the um, German railways, where they gave workers, actually, I think this is really interesting, the option of a pay rise, a shorter working week or five extra days holiday a year. And I don't actually know what the split was between right. what people took up. Um, but we also think government should be looking at this. So we think government should be setting up something like a future of work commission, which would bring together workers' representatives, trade unions, business organisations and, you know, experts in this kind of technology and say, how we are how are we going to ma manage the wave, next wave of technological change? And what, you know, how could we make life better from it? And I think that's one of the kind of key things we wanted to get across is a lot of this debate gets really depressing. It's like, you know, robots are going to take over and then artificial intelligence is going to... Um, you know, increased discrimination at work. And we wanted to say, well, we have the ability to shape what we do with this technology. Let's use it to try and achieve some positive change. Uh, how did the eight-hour day come, come about? That was bargained. It wasn't, it's not, it's not legislative, or is so it? So it was a, T, there were TC campaigns. And I think the first to put limits on the working day was the um, 1874, I think I'll get that right, right um, Factory Act, which right. was a 10-hour day, I think, just for women and children. And I think it was in the ceramics industry. But you got kind of, 
of agitation right. at a workplace level and then, you know, campaigns for political change. So there started to be legislative change too. And then, you know, right up to kind of the late 90s when we got the Working Time Directive, which started to put some limits on the working week too. And what are the short-term things? Because a four-day week sounds like a good mm. idea to me, but it's kind of some way off. There are some more extreme things that we've got to stop in the meantime. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the kind of things that technology is doing at the moment is kind of reducing our control over our working time so whether that's kind of the use of you know just kind of text messages to call someone in and say you need to be in work tomorrow what well, yeah. we've seen in kind of this big rise of zero hours contracts late night emails from your former boss <laughs> my former boss that's I... <laughs> yeah no i know but i didn't realize you were going to be emailing me now that oh i see no no sorry sorry <laughs> late night emails when i was you know. yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm anxious now about yeah, my exactly. balance yeah. um, yeah. you're only following jeff Gordon brown's for, example jeff, <laughs> jeff will forward them yeah this is a, this, this is turning into a therapy session he normalized uh, it. Uh, uh, um, so putting some controls on that. The French had that thing of switching off your emails at the weekend. Exactly. Yeah. So that started as a union negotiated agreement. It's called the right to switch off. And they negotiated it in the telecoms sector, which basically said you have to be able to not reply to emails. Jeff, should we nego- do you want to negotiate a right to switch off, off with me? <laughs> Jeff, I am very happy to, re- to find you Great, and yes, to represent please. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if that would be helpful, Kate, yeah. join a trade union. Excellent be, negotiation. I don't think there is a union of podcasters. Kate's going to be ACAS. Arbitration conciliation service for these purposes and then we'll negotiate the right to switch off I think you know there are many people working more than 48 hours even though we've got supposedly the 48 hour week absolutely yeah? and one of the kind of key things as well really shocking in this report we found there's still 1.4 million people who are working on all seven days of the week and i think one of the things we need to think about is we've got this kind of idea of the on-demand economy and we sometimes forget that that's kind of increasing on-demand workers and some pretty kind of old forms of exploitation being wrapped up in fancy new apps we have a thing on the podcast called the the jeffocracy where i i'm the benign dictator <laughs> working um, one day a week one one day a week i'm very hands-off so i appoint you uh minute minister for work, work labor life. minister for labor there we go it's oh, gonna go great. work life balance but um, you've had a promotion already it's a, a minister for labor uh, what's the first thing you do on day one with regards to this um so first take I'd the impact. day off <laughs> So first, you know, block my emails. I'd empower trade unions basically. So I'd give trade unions a right to access workplaces as a first place to tell workers about the benefits of joining a trade union. And then I'd look really carefully about the structures we've got in place to allow trade unions to represent their workers at the company level, at the sectoral level, and to have a voice at the national level too. You think this is going to come more from trade union bargaining than from decision, some kind of Stand, like the 10 hour day, the four, you know, because you can imagine government somehow legislating for this, maybe for a four day week, and then saying, okay, if you want to pay, you know, if people need to do more than four days, they've got to get paid overtime, you know, extra. Do you think it's more the trade unions, more national government, combination of both? Well, if you look at kind of the history of these changes, it started with trade union organisation and moved into legislative change, basically. So that kind of factory act back in the um, 1800s followed, you know, years of trade union campaigning and agitation. So that's probably how we'd see the change being delivered. Okay, Kate Bell, no more late night emails from me (laughs) i promise they're reserved for jeff thank you very much for joining us thanks so much for having me thank you so what do you think 
Well, I love the idea of a four-day working week. The thing that worries me yep. is something we talked about in an earlier... Don't piss on our chips here. <laughs> in an earlier episode, we talked about union membership yeah. and, and the decline in it and how we fix that, and it's not fixed yet. And the unions don't wield the same kind of power they did when they were pushing for the five-day week. Yeah. So you've got that as a problem. Although I sometimes think about business people. You're turning into a real policy wonk. Is, is that is that my transformation almost yeah, complete? Yeah. My metamorphosis. Yeah. I there I am, trying to trip the light, fantastic, and you're bringing <laughs> me down to earth. I do wonder about businesses, though. You would think they just make sort of cold decisions based on profitability and productivity. Yeah. And if they've got numbers that exactly. say these other countries um, where the people work fewer hours, the productivity is higher, you'd, you'd think that they'd be good enough for them. I mean, I went into this thinking it's a nice idea – but how do you get over the conundrum that people are going to want to work less but for the same amount of money? And I suppose I found Andrew a revelation. He was so but, but, great. Because, because, you know, he was looking at it not from I want to be nice point of view, but from a, you know, hard-nosed business point of view, which ended up being nice and work-life balance and all that, and saying, look, we, can, we, we just weren't that productive and we could be – you know, 20% more productive and have 20% fewer hours and the productivity is the same. And so, you know, it's financially possible. And then I sort of end up thinking, well, maybe the two-day weekend is just a convention. I mean, you know... It is not- because the convention before that was a one-day weekend. Yeah, it's yeah. not a sort of God-given thing. Well, the one-day was. <laughs> exactly. Why shouldn't it become the convention that's a three-day weekend? This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tell us what you think about the idea of a four-day working week. Do you think there's anybody listening who is anti? 
I thought you could say, do you think there's anybody listening? <laughs> well, that's a whole other question, isn't it? We'll see. Um, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, particularly on it. if you're like a business. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. If you're like a business yeah. and thinks this is just wildly impractical, or even better, if you think this is wildly practical, I can imagine doing it. Yeah, uh, let us know about it. Um, on the subject of that, actually, somebody who has uh, a business got in touch. Uh, this is from Richard Colwell, who says, Hi guys, I thought you might be interested to know that your Only Way is Ethics episode on social enterprises inspired us to become one. How brilliant. Yeah, we make furniture from reclaimed wood and urban timber, that is trees that have been felled for reasons other than commercial forestry. This reduces the demand for virgin timber and the deforestation of a country that has some of the lowest levels of tree cover in Europe. We have also pledged to invest the majority of our profits into tree planting and reforestation, helping to combat climate change and improve biodiversity. We are already trying to do business as ethically as possible, but this gave us the inspiration to put the final elements in place and join this amazing movement as well as to review how we make our buying decisions to ensure that we evaluate the social as well as financial impact and today we have moved into a new workshop and we'll be buying our power from good energy after listening to wow i mean he is the model listener richard colwell is the model listener isn't he yeah he adds uh, as you've been so influential in the business so far could you do episodes on how to mend a wonky kettle and where to buy a wide band sander yeah yeah okay that's or even make your own sandwich after. yeah and this one comes from Cat Drew. Hi, Ed and Jeff. First of all, thank you so much for continuing to put on such good shows. They're the perfect length from front door to work door or for a 10-kilometre run. And they've touched on lots of issues I used to work on when I was a civil servant or interested in it as a citizen. By the way, in brackets, this is not from Cat Drew, 14th anniversary of Park Run uh, this last week. I think we should do Park Run at some point. I don't know about Park Run. You do. I don't. Park Run is basically been going 14 years. It's basically, I think, it takes place on normally on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m. People running in the park. I think it's 5K. It's a big community event. Involves a quarter of a million people around the world now. Wow. Yeah, no, it's really a big deal. Anyway, but... It's weird that I wouldn't know about something involving exercise. I know. Well, I was thinking it's kind of, you know... Uh, we met some people recently who said they were doing it, which made me think of it. Anyway, back to Cat Drew. Karen McCluskey's approach was just starting when I worked in the Tackling Gangs programme in the Home Office. That was episode 50 uh, from Edinburgh. And it sounds like she's done amazing work. Big Data for Health was something we were closely interested in as I created the Data Science Ethics Framework for Government a couple of years ago out of the Government Digital Service. And I listened to the episode on cultural regeneration uh, as Waltham Forest, where I live, was about to be voted in as Borough of Culture. You bring these to life in ways that policy documents don't. So thank you. I mean, that's the point of the podcast, that is isn't the it? ultimate compliment. If we're doing that, then we're doing all Yeah. That's um, and then Kat goes on. One thing I'm really committed to is developing policy with people who are experiencing it, whether that's better homelessness services, better health services, or better interventions for those later in life. The government's policy lab was founded in 2014 to open up policymaking and involve users. Lots of service design agencies like Us Creates, where I'm a director, and others like Future. FutureGov, Snook, Shift, Innovation Unit also take this approach. Over the last two years, more and more councils and charities are building their in-house capability in this approach. The design process is starting to get interest more widely. I co-present BBC Radio 4's The Fix with Matthew Taylor, where we bring together 12 young minds from different backgrounds to use design to tackle tricky social issues. So this is less about a specific policy topic per se, but a user-centred approach to creating better ideas across many different social challenges. I mean, I think that is really important i think it speaks a bit to hillary cottam the episode mm. we did from the lunar festival yes um so uh, i think that's a good good thought for the future 
And we got this on our AI episode from Ollie Hood, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I've just listened to the AI episode. I thought it was really encouraging hearing these conversations being had about AI in a more mainstream space. Lots of interesting ideas there. One issue... We've become mainstream. That's us, yeah. Yeah. We're bringing these ideas to the mainstream. Um, One issue I had, however, was with Duncan McCann's proposal of not allowing the creation of algorithms which are not understood by their creators. What's reasonable on the surface, it kind of defeats the entire purpose of algorithms. CGP Grey made an excellent video on how machines learn on YouTube. You can look that up, um, which I would highly recommend watching. He explains that the basic premise of machine learning algorithms, for example, how YouTube recommends your videos, is that we don't know how they work by their very nature. If we did, then we would just build them ourselves and we wouldn't need the machine learning middleman. I agree that there needs to be some form of regulation in place, but banning all algorithms that we don't understand seems a bit heavy-handed. If we can't figure out disease cures, why should we expect to be able to understand the machines that can? Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcasts or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch us some ideas, uh, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Matthew Crosby. Hello. Hello. Hi. How, how are you both? We're, we're all right. How, how are you? I'm very good. I mean, I know actually how you are because we chatted about it prior to this, but, um, <laughs> but, but in a professional capacity, Yeah, there's microphone on, how are you? Absolutely, microphone yeah. off, how are you? You're both miserable off, off, <laughs> exactly. off mic, but now... Well, we're pretending to be. You were in Edinburgh this year, but you weren't doing a show up there. You were being a director. That's right, yeah. I was up there directing three shows. Um, Lazy Susan, who are sketch double act. Jess Robinson, who is a musical uh, comedian, impressionist. And Adam Vincent, who is uh, an Aussie stand-up. But you are out doing your show in Chester at the end of October. That's right. On the 27th of October, I'm doing a show called Let's Be Friends. And the idea behind the show is I befriend five audience members and we do stuff in the show that friends would do, like going out for a drink or playing darts or karaoke, the sort of things I like to do with my friends. And at the end, one of them becomes my real friend. So how many friends have you acquired as a result of the show? As a result of the show? Well, it's quite, it's quite one-sided. Um, none of them are tweeted back to me after the, uh, <laughs> after the show. But, um, but, you know... You brought along some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, some policy ideas. Well, what have you got first? Well, the first one is uh, a birthday theory. Basically, you know, I'm very lucky, very fortunate, very privileged to be able to kind of, if I want something, normally what I do is I go and buy it and then I've got it. I'm not, you know, one of the great things about not being a child is you don't have to see a thing in the Argos catalogue and then wait till your next birthday rolls around 11 months later to actually get that thing. You can just go, oh, there it is. I want that, whatever it's going to be, slush puppy. So what's the answer? So here's the system. You and a finite group of friends. Let's explain it between the three of us. Okay, so my birthday's the 12th of February, Ed. 24th of December. 24th of December. Oh, Christmas Eve, right? Correct. So... It's a gift. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Jeff? 20th of April, same as Luther Vandross and Adolf Hitler. Nicely spread out. Uh, I was talking about the dates, not Luther Vandross and Adolf Hitler. Although they are. They are. Um, so when the 24th of December comes around, I send you a text message saying, happy birthday, Ed. I've bought myself what I, what I want, you know? And then you know that I'm thinking of you on your birthday, but also getting something for myself. But that's effectively my birthday present. Interesting. 12th rolls around. That's the next one. I get a text from both of you. 
happy birthday, Matthew. I've bought something to the value of £10. And that way you get presents all the way through the year. Admittedly, you're buying them for yourself, but <laughs> fair enough. And you don't have the awkwardness of going, oh, I'd forgotten that person's birthday or I need to do this. You know, it's... I think this is a great idea. I think it's a perfect system. I think the good that yeah. there's one flaw in it. Talk me through the flaw. Which is that... You don't get presents on your birthday. You get presents on other people's birthdays. Yeah, but you're going to get five, six, seven presents, depending on the number of friends, throughout the course of the, the year. The total number s- of presents is higher. You can suck it up for one day. Yeah. And mm. also, you can still have a birthday party where you go to a pub and everyone buys you drinks. And so right. you can still see your friends. On the sort of value for money stakes, it would definitely be more effective presents. I mean, the satisfaction level from presence would definitely rise it would go in an aggregate level. I completely agree. I got my wife tickets to go and see the production of Singing in the Rain. And uh, she opened it and she was like, oh, right, Singing in the Rain. I, oh, thanks. This is going to be a fun a fun evening at the theatre, but quite weird. Uh, I could tell, you know, she wasn't quite into the presence. So I waited a few weeks. I was like, you know, we're going to see Singing in the Rain. You didn't seem that bothered we would walk past the theater seeing singing in the rain was on and we'd had a chat about how you wanted to go and she said no we'd walk past the theater and you'd said you wanted to go (laughs) and i'd said yeah that sounds all right and clearly in my brain i'd gone well that's enough she wants to go i'll get the ticket so i think yeah ultimately people are quite i think you're on why not play you're definitely on to something yeah all right we'll have that what what have you got next nothing worse than hearing a non-parent talk about what parents should Mm. and shouldn't do (laughs) but uh i'm going to do it anyway Mm -hmm. I think there's no problem with kids swearing. Because? I think you have to teach kids how to use the language, but a well-placed swear from a kid is really delightful. It is funny. I mean, it's really funny funny. when kids swear. It's really funny. I sort of think there should be more swearing in adult life. I think what you're on to something is there's a degree of hypocrisy, isn't there? Well, there is. Because it's like, you know, you're not allowed to swear, you say to your children but we are. I've never sworn in front of my parents. My mum once heard me say the word bugger on the radio and she phoned me to tell me she was very disappointed in me. And what was her reaction to the swearing? But if she didn't have that, I mean, obviously I don't want to, I don't know your mother, so I sort of educate her on parenting. You've, you've turned out fantastically, but like if we didn't have that thing in our in the back of our brains going oh, we shouldn't really be swearing should we polite company is sort of weird it's isn't a it? strange one i don't understand you might it. be onto something okay uh, what you got next so this is the seen by read by notifications on texts or on whatsapp or on facebook messages and the someone is typing features i think have to go they, they drive you to insanity they absolutely drive you to insanity. i like the someone is typing feature Okay. It's like being in a. It's like sort of knowing because if you're in a phone conversation, maybe you get the sense that you're being silent and they're talking. Yes, but if they're writing, you don't know that they're writing, and therefore your messages might sort of keep crossing. That's sort of fair enough, but when those three little dots appear, yeah. or someone is typing, it's quite exciting. It is exciting if a text eventually comes. Mm. Oh, then sometimes they don't come. But I've, I've definitely oh, because been they're reading your text. They're reading it. It looks like they're typing mm, or they're... The and then you see the little dots and you yeah. go, oh, any second now. Mm. I was trying to arrange a night out uh, with some friends. I did it through Facebook Messenger. I oh, sent yeah. out a message saying, hey, everybody, how yeah. about we meet in the White Heart probably yeah. seven o'clock on Friday? No responses, but Facebook handily wrote at the bottom, this has been seen by everyone. <sighs> and you're like, 
that is Facebook that's feeling like they're trolling you to be like, yes. everyone's seen it, Crosby. <laughs> Everybody knows that you're that putting is... yourself, you know, you're opening your heart, you're putting yourself out there. <laughs> I got joined into a WhatsApp group recently that started in 2016. Just kill my parents. Just murder my parents if you want to make me feel bad. 2016, the group started. Well, now I got added you. now. Forget it. Yeah. I don't want to be part of that group. 2016. I, I know how you feel. You don't start on Series 4, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> you're coming from the start or you're not in at all. Start a new WhatsApp group. Right, I'm going to start one. Okay, yeah. I tell you what, I'll, I mean, it's not really a group if it's two people. It's just you and I having a yeah. conversation. But we, we can get okay. in one. Thanks. No, no, no trouble. All right, did you have one last idea for okay. us? So, driving back from gigs, I often see people having blazing rows in the street. They're normally inebriated. And I have often contemplated stopping the car and hopping out and trying to act as a sort of mediator between... Like a Jeremy Kyle. A roving Jeremy yeah, Kyle. A sort of more benevolent, sort of Jeremy Kyle, if You're you were for the Samaritans. Bloke. I just feel like a lot of those arguments aren't because they hate each other. It's because they love each other too much. And I'm not saying it's couples. I'm saying it's friends. So on-the-spot the counselling. I can I'm see Jeff doing that. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. You see, I don't like interacting with people, but I, I, I like the idea of being a saviour. Yeah. The first couple of times, it just could be so weird that a bus has shown up and someone's hopped out. <laughs> people are going to go, yeah, th that was a weird thing. We're what, not going to argue anymore. What would the bus be called? What about the anger bus, like the Venger bus? Or the anger bus. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The anger bus is coming. Yeah. Ed won't know what the Venger bus is because it's from the 90s. Do you not remember the 90s? No. I think a bus is coming. Well, maybe you could use the tune. Another blank stare. This is amazing. <laughs> you could use the tune. And so you would hop out and, you know, Jeff being oh, a very... I'm uh, into the anger bus. A very smiley presence. You could show up. There'd also be that weird thing of people going, is that Ed Miliband who yeah. just told us to chill out? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like that. That's not a bad idea. good, actually. You've given us a renewed sense of purpose. Definitely. I'm so delighted. Yeah. That's great. You'd need to be part of this, though. I'm happy to be. I'm happy to be part of it. You're the yeah. impresario behind it. Marvelous. That's a good idea. Well, as I say, you've given us a renewed sense Definitely. of purpose. Thank you so much for it's that. It's been a total pleasure. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I know what song you'll be singing the next time we go to karaoke. Living for the weekend. Yeah, a bit hard. Hard fire. fire. I've actually seen hard fire in concert. What? Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, they were, what do you call it? Warm up. Support act. Support act for Billy Bragg. <laughs> right. Or maybe he was the support act for them. <laughs> How were they? Good. I like them. Your voice went very high. Yeah, good. <laughs> and actually, talking of music, I met someone on the tube from the correspondence. Uh -huh. And he said, Oh, I listen to your podcast a lot. And I said, Oh, why? And he said, Because my band mate insists on playing it in our van. I love that your response was. Why? Why? Yeah, exactly. Why would you listen to that? Well, I don't think it was why. Yeah, there's something like that. Anyway, so shout out to the correspondents. Absolutely. Um, just something I wanted to mention is we are looking for somebody um, to work on the podcast. It's a, it's a freelance thing, um, and I won't go into all the details here, but we're after somebody who's a bit of a policy nerd. But if you go to the Guardian Jobs website and have a look for us and reasons to be cheerful, uh, it details exactly what it is. It's quite a special specialised thing but I'm sure there are plenty of people who listen who would be qualified for that Great, shall we thank our guests I'm yeah. going to thank uh, Kate Bell Head of Economic and Social Policy at the TUC I'm also going to thank Andrew Barnes two great guests I thought And thanks again to the wonderful Matthew Crosby So Emma Corsham produced our podcast James Deacon made the eye dents Ed Seed did our music yeah. and, and Emily artwork. Power Emily Power There's only one Emily Power Exactly I think, I've not looked in the phone book 
Uh, he has been the midnight emailer. He's been one day a week. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.